0: Welcome to the Nature MI podcast. Here, we uncover nature-inspired solutions to the world's most urgent problems, like climate change and global pandemics. We talk with thought leaders and innovators who are taking their cues from nature, and we explore ways to unravel nature's deepest secrets. Now here's your host, A man who finds inspiration in nature on a daily basis, Dr. Victor Shamus.
1: Greetings. This episode is a special one for me because it features a conversation with Patrick Farnsworth, the host of the Last Born in the Wilderness podcast. As the host of a fledgling podcast myself, I think of Patrick as a role model and an example of really quality podcasting. He tackles major issues with thoughtfulness and honesty. Recently on his podcast, he's touched upon feminism, police violence, indigenous rights, race relations, the COVID-19 pandemic and a number of other topics that are current, timely, and impact our daily lives. The overarching theme of Last Born in the Wilderness has to do with climate change and ecological collapse. Patrick takes a very unique approach to environmental concerns, focusing on their psychological and emotional impact. He explores the possibility that we are living in apocalyptic times, What if it turns out that all our attempts to reverse the damage that human activity has done to the biosphere are simply too little, too late? What then? As an optimist, I emphasize solutions, strategies, and hope. But it's also realistic to question that hope. What if it's false and misguided? If you are diagnosed with a terminal illness Would you rather know the truth or be given false hope? As a species, it's possible that we have put ourselves on a self-destructive course that is now irreversible. That is a very heavy truth to face, but Patrick Farnsworth does so with courage and compassion. Those of you who are listening to this podcast may be among the last few generations of humans to populate the earth. While that possibility may seem tragic and even hopeless, it can also offer us an opportunity to decide how are we going to live our lives and make the most of the precious time that we as human beings have left. In our conversation, which happened in May 2020, Patrick offers the idea that there's freedom to be found if we let go of hope, especially the false hope that comes from thinking that someone more knowledgeable and powerful than ourselves is going to swoop in with some kind of a technical fix at the last minute. The freedom that comes from admitting that there may not be any hope of rescue in sight is the same one that a dying patient might face in saying, okay, this is the end. How am I going to find joy? What do I need to do to put my affairs in order? And how do I cope with grief, loss, and the entire array of feelings that my condition is now evoking in me? This raises a question in my mind about the possibility of an individual, a society, or even an entire race finding healthy ways to die. That may seem like an odd paradoxical idea. How do you die healthy? The reason this conversation with Patrick fits so well into the themes of the Nature MI podcast is that I believe with all my heart that the experience of nature inspiration can soothe the heart and heal the human spirit, regardless of the outcome. Finding our deepest connection to nature, both personally and collectively, may represent the only chance that humanity has at survival, at reversing the damage we have done through our carelessness and greed, as well as the possibility, as remote as it may seem, of regeneration and rebirth, whether or not we can heal the earth, revive our dying oceans, save the decimation of our topsoil and pollinators and habitats, and somehow rescue species from extinction We still have to find ways to live with ourselves, and whatever time remains, and in the most gratifying, fulfilling, and joyful ways possible. When I listen to Patrick speak, I think it's time to wake up, to face the very real possibility that we are the last born in the wilderness. Now, here's my interview with Patrick Farnsworth. Patrick Farnsworth, welcome to the Nature of My podcast. We're really delighted to have you here today. Thank you, Victor. I,
2: I really appreciate you thinking of me and having me on. You know, I was saying before we started that often I'm the one on the other end. I'm usually in your position in these types of things. So it's, uh, it's good. I, I'm really happy to hear that find my work to be as valuable as it is and that you're willing to talk to me on your podcast. And, and so, I, yeah, I, I thank you for having me on.
1: Well, I'm a big admirer of your work, and I think what you're doing on your podcast is tremendously important. Uh, One of the first things that struck me was the name, Last Born in the Wilderness. There's so many levels of meaning to that. Mm -hmm. But one of the first things I wanted to ask you is, do you feel yourself to be the last born in the wilderness? And if so, in in what ways?
2: Mm. You know, it's funny, that name, I remember once I, I sent an interview, when I first interviewed I don't know if you're familiar with Bio Akamalafe. I interviewed him a couple times. And I remember the very first time I, I sent an interview request to him via email, he said he agreed to do it. But he's like, your name, I like I like the name of your podcast it has almost an apocalyptic uh, kind of quality to it. And I guess that's kind of what I'm going for, right? I do explore that subject a lot on the podcast. You know, I do think that we are coming up against a lot of limits on this planet, including the loss of what we would define as wilderness, you know, wild places, the natural world. I guess to maybe unpack the name, it kind of explains a little bit of my own background and what I approach in this uh, in this podcast. When I started the podcast, and I think it was about eight years ago, officially, even though it took me a long time to actually get to the point where I'm doing what I'm doing now. So it went through several iterations. I, I remember when I started it and I was thinking about my father. So I grew up in the LDS church. I grew up as a Mormon. Uh, I'm no longer active or, or have any affiliation with that religion, but there's a passage in the first book in the Book of Mormon, I believe, and it's, it's paraphrased, but it's talking about being the last born in the wilderness, something along those lines. And because I'm the youngest of my family, a family of six, of six children, uh, my father would, would call me his last born in the wilderness. It's kind of a, a, a weird little nickname that he would make up for his kids, you know, and he, he would call me that. So in a way, I was referencing my own history with the religion I grew up in because I think we can't really fully escape our roots, you know, even if we are deeply critical of it and we want to maybe do away with it in a, in a sense. Uh, e- even with that, we have to kind of come to terms with our roots and where we come from. So the name references that. But as the podcast evolved, as the themes of the podcast evolved, I began to take on more, more um a deeper analysis or a deeper conversation about the ecological crisis that we're in the midst of currently on this planet, the climate crisis. And yeah, like you you asked, you know, what does it mean? Do, do I define myself as the last born in the wilderness? I think it can kind of be interpreted two ways, which is that we are literally maybe the last few generations of human beings to exist on this planet before things change to the point where human life is not possible. So this sort of explores the potential extinction of human life, which is a heavy subject, uh, of course, so being the last born in that sense. But also, even if we do persist through it, I mean, all of these natural places are disappearing. So it's very possible that we will be the last generation or several generations to be born with any understanding of what the natural world really is in any intact form at all. So, yeah, you know, I I don't know if I am the last born in the wilderness. I I certainly wasn't actually born in the wilderness. I was born in a (laughs) hospital like the majority of people, I guess, now. But that that name takes on multiple um, levels of meaning, for me at least.
1: When you started out, so it was eight years ago, I thought you'd been doing it about five years. There's so many different strands in your podcast, uh, different topics that you touch upon. What did you think the podcast was going to be about when you started? And has that changed? Has that evolved for you over time? Do you think the podcast has taken on a different life than you might have originally anticipated coming in?
2: Yeah, I think it has. When I started it, and and I, I can understand why you maybe thought it was five
1: years ago, because I think when I
2: uploaded episodes to my SoundCloud page, it was several years after I started it. But the first like 50 episodes I probably produced over the course of four or five years because I was completely unfocused, just had really shoddy equipment. I was really just recording my own thoughts or my friends. We would have these really casual conversations. So I knew when I started it that if I finally had the motivation and the focus and just the willingness to put myself out there that eventually it would evolve into something like it is today. I had a deep sense that if I let my skill set expand and I trust the process more, that it would eventually evolve into something that I could be proud of. But you know, you have to be able to really recognize that in yourself. Most of the time, at least for, for much of my life, I've been really afraid to take risks and to really just allow myself to make mistakes. And to be embarrassed too, because I mean, I think it's funny, you mentioned you listened to my first episode and I almost almost got slightly embarrassed because I'm like, that's out there. I'm not ashamed of it, actually ashamed of it. But in a way, I'm like, that's so different from what I do now. I feel like my, my skills have really improved since then with the work that I do. But I guess when I started it, I really wanted to just use it as a means to connect with people because I think for much of my life, I felt like there were a lot of subjects that I was really fascinated in, politics and political theory, um, eventually that expanded to environmental issues and, and the science around climate change, uh, psychedelics and other things like that were a big fascination for me as well. Yeah, I really just wanted to use a platform to basically have those conversations that I was in desperate need of as, as an individual. I felt, even though I have a lot of great friends and family, they weren't interested. You know, when I would bring up something about climate change, it just didn't, res- didn't seem like it really resonated with people. Their eyes would glaze over a bit You know, they weren't ready to have that conversation or weren't interested in the conversation. So I think there was maybe a subconscious desire to find the others, as you could say, find other people that I could connect with and feel like I was a part of some community. And I could say that that's really been what's happened is that it's been incredibly enriching over the past two, three years of doing interviews like I have. I've met some of the most incredible people. I've developed some of the most beautiful relationships with people all over the world who in one way or the other see things in a similar way that I do and have allowed me to expand my focus, expand my reach with my my work and, and see things in a much deeper way. So I guess what started out as, again, an exploration of these subjects has been for me a way to dig deeper because it's one thing to talk about the science of ecological collapse or, or climate change or any of these subjects. That's that's a first and very important step in that process, but that's a purely intellectual exercise, right? Mm, Anybody right. who can kind of read and understand the data you you can get it but we're emotional spiritual beings we're conscious beings we recognize the, what are the implications of this so my work has been about okay let's talk about the science but let's dig into those deeper qualities of this crisis and what kind of came up for me is like it's not one thing something that i've tried to to emphasize in my work is um there tends to be within these groups that that do acknowledge the the implications of climate disruption and ecological collapse and all of this I think one of the first and initial reactions people have is that human beings themselves are a virus or a parasite or a scourge or something bad, that it was almost inevitable that we would all be led to this point, that we're like a self-destructive species. And I believed that for a while. I really did. I I had almost a, a misanthropic perspective of humanity. But as I dug deeper, I realized, no, that that was never inevitable. And there were certain historical processes that gave rise to certain systems and dynamics and societies that allowed for this type of destruction to continue. And there have been numerous examples of other cultures and societies that have existed for thousands and thousands of years that have never done this. They've never destroyed their environments or their land base. My podcast has been a way for me to explore those deeper elements of the crises that we're in the midst of.
1: Sometimes I feel like when I listen to your podcast episodes that that some of it like dealing with grief or psychedelics, it's almost about finding your emotional centeredness or ways of coping with very challenging time. I mean, you know, if we really are in apocalyptic times and mm-hmm. we're living through that, then those of us who are sensitive, you know, we're like the canaries in the coal mine. We're, we're yelling at the world, wait, can't you see what's happening? And yeah. nobody seems to be, I've, I've heard comedians make jokes like, well, you know, we only got 10, 15 years, what the hell, let's party. Which it's painfully funny, if, if funny at all to <laughs> me, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so so I wonder if those strands for you what what they are is about ways that you're dealing with finding sense and and finding a way to manage being alive in this time uh where where wild places are vanishing where it seems like things are getting more chaotic uh, with time, mm-hmm. et cetera and we're we're witnessing collapse that's what it feels like right yeah
2: yeah yeah it's um it's been, again, I think at a certain point after you've explored the kind of just factual side of the subject, it's like, okay, well, that's, that's fine. Now now what? Trying to find the others that are trying to build resiliency in this time. I think what's important for me is like, I certainly have my, my position or my opinion or my belief that we may be facing human extinction. But what I've come to recognize is that that does not give us a pass. That doesn't mean that we can live the last several generations or whatever it is on this planet in in kind of a hedonistic sort of self-centered way. Our obligations to the planet and to our fellow human beings still stand regardless of that. So yeah, the the work I've been doing has been a way to find those other people that are engaging in however they're choosing to do this, to build emotional, spiritual, and actual material resiliency in the face of these converging crises. And I think what happened is I had a real shift just in the past year, and I would say particularly in the past few months because this pandemic hit, and I was just as blindsided as anyone else was by it. I can talk as much as I want about preparing for these crises but it doesn't matter how much you can talk about it you're still going to be challenged with the forms this crisis will manifest in and it'll it'll hit in a way that you don't expect there's no way that we can know everything so i think we have to be very humble in the face of what's happening right now so yeah when i approach talking about this pandemic i'm i'm realizing and it's actually a really difficult subject for me sometimes i had to take about 3 weeks off from doing this podcast just until very recently because i was just so overwhelmed by it but it's not just the pandemic, it's the reactions and the way that, at least speaking in, as someone here in the United States, it's, it's increasing the divisions, it's increasing the fracturing of this society. People are being incredibly responsible and caring and, and acknowledging what their role is in all of this, but there's many, many people who aren't. Right. And, and I realize how much of that is, stems from, I think, a trauma. There's some kind of deep trauma in this society and in this culture, And that's something that I've been trying to explore more recently, because I think it's not enough to just talk about the facts of the matter anymore, because I'm really speaking to people that are looking and craving something really nurturing, emotionally and spiritually nurturing right now. And I personally am craving that as well.
1: I wonder about hope, because uh, I heard you talk on that introductory video to your podcast about the example of the dying patient. You know, Mm. how much hope should the dying patient have? Because we're all going to die. Is it better to face our death straight on and deal with it? Or should we hold out hope that things could get better? I happen to be in the camp that, that we can do both. If these are apocalyptic times, as you say, what hope, if any, do you hold out? And has anything you've encountered doing your podcast giving you greater hope than you might have had before.
2: Hmm. Well, I guess uh, the way that I've come to understand it or, or present that is, I think there's actually something, I know it sounds strange, but maybe there's something liberating in giving up on hope in a general sense, because I think so much of it is based on you're hoping for an outcome that may not happen. And considering with the trends that are unfolding in climate change and with the uh, environmental crisis at large, and then just seeing how societies are reacting to those changes, I really don't have much faith that the systems that we're a part of, at least, are going to be able to deal with those crises as they unfold. So I don't have any hope in that sense. And I do think that the habitat for for human life may not exist in the future, unfortunately. I think by giving up that sense that we're going to somehow come up with some technological fix some engineering scheme, some kind of grand plan, understanding that often the solutions that are being presented to us come from the very root of the problem itself, that the very culture and the very civilization that produced the problem is trying to use the same tools to fix Mm -hmm. those problems, right? Right. Um, And so any solutions or any sort of way of approaching this is going to really have to come from outside of the dominant paradigm. And we're going to have to listen to people that have been marginalized for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Think of people who have survived mass collapse, pandemics. Those are typically indigenous people. They're the ones that have known how to live in a sustainable way for for thousands and thousands of years. And we have to, as people that are as a member of the dominant culture, we have to recognize what our culture has done to these people and then begin to ask them with a great deal of humility to show us like what can be done in the face of these widespread crises that we're in the midst of. You know, there's a real balancing act that has to be there because you have to acknowledge like the historical weight of that question that you're asking. You know, Mm -hmm. there's uh, a great deal of humility that's required in order to come to that place. So I guess for me, if we dispense with the hope that we can fix it, that there's some kind of fix, there is actually something on the other side of that. So then the priority becomes not about how can we save our civilization or save us as a species. It's like, what is the sacred obligations that we have right now? And that is healing, not only healing ourselves, but trying to heal what places we can and defend whatever places we can against the exploitation of the dominant system. Somebody that came to mind, I know when you, we, were, we were getting ready for this interview, somebody that I've interviewed that is doing some very, very tangible things with very, a very clear vision is Joe Brewer, somebody that I've interviewed several times, and he is completely aware of all the things that I've talked about up to this point. And he understands that right now we need to start building what he calls regenerative hubs. It's not enough that we build sustainable systems, sustainable cultures. Sustainability is just basically saying, do no harm. So how can we reduce the damage that our lifestyle is having on the planet and just reduce it to zero? He's like, that's fine, but we need to go past that point where we're actually using our creative capacities as a species because we have enormous capacities, creative capacities as a as a species on this planet. But using those capacities to not only not harm the planet, but to become one with it by helping regenerate the places that we live. You know, if there is a damaged ecosystem, what can we do to help build those systems back up again, make them more healthy and actually be a member of the broader systems of life on this planet again, not in conflict with, not in this sort of taking relationship, but something that actually contributes to those systems. And so if if there is anything like hope that I have, it is in those that are thinking so outside of the box and trying Mm -hmm. to decolonize their own worldviews and then present basically ways of being and existing that are far older than the systems that we're currently embedded within that are destructive. And again, doing that with the full recognition that it may not work. Hmm. And that's really the kicker here because people want to win. People want to have a victory over this. And you have to recognize, like, do it not because you're going to win. Do it because it's the right thing to do. You know, that's what we have to do. And so if there's any hope at all, it's in that.
1: And there's this element... Two, that a lot of these problems stem from the fact that we've gotten disconnected from nature. We hear this all the time. The theme of this podcast is that we can be more aligned with nature, but here's how. Here are things mm-hmm. that we can personally do to uh, align ourselves And I I would argue that the reason you do that, regardless of the outcomes, and I think the outcomes could be spectacular if we were more aligned, is that it feels damn good. You know, yeah. when, we're, when we're really connected with nature and our bodies is a really wonderful feeling. So one of the things I sense in some of your work is that we almost have an obligation to ourselves and to our world to really make the most of each moment because we don't know as a species and individually what we get. What is your sense about the importance of aligning with nature and how and what you, maybe what you've encountered that people have done well in that regard from doing your podcast? Hmm. I guess it's true.
2: You know, what you say is like, it it just feels good when you feel like you're connected in general. And it could be like having human connection when you actually feel like genuinely connected with another human being. I think anybody, I don't care who you are, that's ultimately what we're striving for. Even if it gets perverted or twisted or warped because of our traumas or, or whatever it is, that is ultimately what we strive for as human beings. And that connection should extend even further and deeper into the land and into the natural world, as, as you would say, and, and to sort of break down those false barriers, those barriers that don't really exist at all, but we, but we build and we make real by our actions and our behaviors. So yeah, you know, finding that deeper connection wherever you can. And I think that there's also something here, which is, this is kind of something that when I talked with the journalist Dar Mayle. I've developed a good relationship with him over time, and he writes a lot about climate disruption. He wrote a really great book called The End of Ice. It's a really excellent book on climate disruption. And for him, it's like he went and witnessed all these, went to these different places around the world, saw how climate the climate was changing and impacting these various locations already right now. And he talked about that sort of sort of a painful beauty or something like that where he goes to these really intensely beautiful places in the natural world and he sees, he's like, I don't know if I'm ever going to see these places ever again. And not just because he won't travel there again, but because they may very well just disappear. He went to Australia, went to uh, the coral reefs, the Great Barrier Reef, mm. saw how much of that has disappeared due to coral bleaching, which is when the water has, is too warm and it starts to kill off the coral reefs. And the acidification of the oceans as well due to carbon emissions is contributing to that as well. He just remarked about how as he was scuba diving and looking at this reef, his appreciation of it was deeper because he knew that this wasn't going to be around for very long. So in a way, there's this side of it where it's nice to say, go out and appreciate nature right now. But in that appreciation, you're actually going to witness some things that are very difficult to deal with. If you go to a place that you used to love that was largely untouched by development, for instance, and you go there and you see bulldozers and your favorite tree was just knocked down so that they can build a strip mall or something really stupid like that, not only does that bring about a sense of despair and grief, but it could elicit anger and it could elicit some sort of action that is maybe appropriate, which is to defend and protect those places and fight back against those forces that wish to destroy everything in its path. So I think that it's not one thing. I think that we should definitely try to connect more with the places we're in, We should try to do what we can though to defend them, but at at any costs, because we're really up against the wall here. There's no more room for this. And that's when really deep and difficult questions have to be asked. So yeah, that's how I've approached it where I'm like, look, I'll I'll appreciate people's opinions and their perspectives on these various subjects. But I think we really have to get to the reality of like what's at stake here and what actions can we take that that is going to actually work to defend those
1: places and defend the dignity of life itself. Sometimes it feels like what's happening is a juggernaut and we're trying to stand in the way of something like a, a boulder rolling down a mountain. And yeah. One of the things I've heard you, you cite Charles Eisenstein and my read on his work is that he sees us like an addict that hasn't hit bottom yet. And mm-hmm. that when you hit bottom is, is when you actually start to do something for many people. And sometimes the addict waits too long. I actually have a good friend who was an addict and waited too long and died from alcoholism. Do you see that, for example, the COVID-19 pandemic is a sign of our society moving closer to hitting bottom? And do you think that it's possible I saw this standstill that happened with the lockdown as a sign that so many people I heard say, boy, we really love that the air is cleaner and to see wildlife come out and all the things that have been real blessing in disguise of what has happened. So I guess my question is, you know, in 2020, are you seeing... Does it feel to you as somebody with great sensitivity to these issues, like we're getting closer to hitting bottom? And do you think that that's what it's going to take for things to shift?
2: Yeah, I do think that it is bringing us closer to hitting bottom. I mean, we're we're talking right now, I mean, in the United States specifically. United States is uniquely unprepared and unwilling to really do what what it takes to get through this pandemic in a very responsible and unified way. But I think that we're just beginning to feel the impacts of what this pandemic has done to our society. I don't think it's going to honestly get better. I don't think there's going to be a real recovery around the corner. Um, I think we're probably in the midst of the beginning of a depression. And I'm not against that, but I, but I, <laughs> but I guess I recognize that in these states of crisis, like right now, we're we're forced to slow down. And like you said, you know, in certain cases, we're seeing the air the air is cleaner. We can we can actually see the sky. Like I, I don't know if you saw pictures. I think it was in India and other places around the world where because people aren't driving anymore because of air air pollution has dropped dramatically. You can actually see the sky can imagine how long people have lived under a cloud of smog and then for the first time in probably people's lives in say a generation or so they can actually see what it's like to breathe clear clean air things that we just took for granted for most of human life is now not normal anymore it's not a given and so when that window of opportunity that we are in the midst of now opened up yeah i felt a sense of like maybe people now will be forced to take the time to reflect on where we really are at right now so I do sense that, yeah, there is a there is a hope. And I know that the virus has done something that environmental activism has never been able to pull off. <laughs> We've had, you know, mainstream environmental activism has been going for decades and it's never been able to pull off what this virus has been able to pull off. Stop so,
1: air I, travel, stop car travel. Yep, uh, yeah, yeah. Closed yeah. down places that should have been closed down a long time ago. Yes. Uh, another friend who's been an environmentalist for years says that the cancer of human activity is in remission, but it's going to start up again. It is starting mm-hmm. up again. What we really need is a cure, not just a temporary remission.
2: Yeah, and I think paying attention to people's reactions in my close circle of family and friends has been interesting. Because, you know, on on a level, like a certain level, I knew that there were going to be these types of crises that were going to emerge. But when I look at this pandemic and I see what's happening, I'm like, this is really just a precursor. This is just like, as someone said on my podcast once, it's a dress rehearsal for the climate apocalypse or the climate disruption. And seeing people and how ready they are to get back to normal to get back to where they can go back to work, go back to school, go back and do these things. I think people are just not, it just never really occurred to them that these types of crises could ever emerge in their lifetimes. And I think there's, it's coming up against a sense of entitlement that we have right now, which is that we are in control and we should maintain our control over these things and at any cost to maintain our lifestyles and our way of living. The reactions have been varied all the way from people doing exactly what you said. They're, they're looking at it, seeing it, asking the right questions, beginning to see those gifts that have come out of it, like you said. But there's also a lot of people that are reacting in a very negative and I would say really childish way, which is a sense of entitlement and privilege and that we need to get, we need to get back to work. We need to get things going again. We need to get the economy back in shape. It just never occurred to them to even ask those deeper questions. I think that that's the real thing that is hard to predict about all of this, which is it's not going to be one unified response. It's going to be a collection of a whole spectrum of responses, and some of them are going to be really good, but there's going to be a lot of them that are going to be really bad too. That to me doesn't make me optimistic, but it does make me see where my alliances really lie and who I really want to be with and support and what kind of world I want to live in, even if it means coming up against those other folks that are reacting in a very poor way, in my opinion. Again, I don't know, I don't want to be a downer here, but I, <laughs> I don't have necessarily a lot of hope that humanity is just going to learn a lesson from this as a whole.
1: I agree with you as a whole. I recently interviewed Elizabeth Satoris, who feels that there's an evolutionary shift happening from a competitive to a cooperative system, and that that is something that happens periodically in ecosystems and species. But the thing is that those shifts are, are violent. The example of the caterpillar turning into a butterfly, it turns out that that's a really internal violent thing. The butterfly's body essentially attacks the caterpillars and the caterpillar fights it Mm -hmm. until it can't fight it any longer. As somebody who's been in academia, I know that the paradigm shifts that happen there, you kind of wait for the old guard to either retire or die because yeah. otherwise it doesn't happen. And, and yeah. so the, the people who are racing to the bars today in Wisconsin because the lockdown was reversed by the Supreme Court there, you know, that's one response to this. But, yeah. It, yeah. but it doesn't necessarily uh, bode well for humanity. For one thing, if people aren't asking, especially people with kids, like, I wonder yeah. why can't we get to the billionaire's kids and say, hey, children of billionaires, make a vow that you're not going to have any children until, until your <laughs> parents get their act together.
2: <laughs> that would carry
1: some weight, wouldn't it?
2: <laughs> yeah, that would be something, right? I know that you have that perspective. And I, and I think, you know, it's interesting because um, I think often what's happening on the individual level happens on a collective level. So you said, you know, when massive changes occur, it's not a peaceful, easy process. It's a violent process. And think about all the times in your life and in my life and anyone's life that's listening where you've had a massive change in your life. Those weren't just easy things. And often they didn't, they didn't come to you just by choice. You didn't just like, oh, I'm just going to be different now. No, it's, it's like life has its way with you. And in a sense, what's happening now with this pandemic, I think, I don't want to like anthropomorphize this virus or the earth too much. I see the earth as a living, intelligent entity. I, I don't want to dismiss that at all. But I don't want to necessarily believe that the earth is making decisions the way that human beings would make a decision. But I do have this feeling that this pandemic is, is, it is a wake-up call. It is asking us, it's saying, this is going to be difficult, but you guys aren't taking the hint here. You're not learning anything. You know, I don't know how much loss you have to experience for you to get it, but we're going to take it up another notch here. So realize how vulnerable you are as an organism on this planet. You're not invincible and there's no amount of technology or no amount of thinking that's going to get you out of this. It's amazing that something as small and invisible in many ways as a virus is what it took to slow this machine Mm -hmm. down. It wasn't some big program. It wasn't this big thing, this big engineering project. No, it was a very simple thing. And it only came about, from my understanding of where the virus came from, it really is just stems from the way that we produce and distribute food and and how our whole system is built. By destroying the natural world and by expanding industrial agriculture and by exploiting the natural world as much as we have, we are creating the conditions for more of these types of viruses to emerge. That alone should be a wake-up call. The way we're doing things isn't working, and it's only going to create more crises and more problems for human life and other life on the planet as well. If there's any sliver of hope in there, it's that enough people, not everybody, but enough Mm -hmm. people are going to take that message and begin to make those really important changes that are required right now. So even if it's say 1% of the human population, let's say in a really optimistic sense, it's like 10%, which is insane to imagine. But let's just say like 1% Mm -hmm. of the human population begins to transition to regenerative cultures, regenerative societies and ways of, of living. That would be, honestly, in my opinion, that would be enough to provide some glimmer of hope that we could persevere through at least some of the changes that are coming our way.
1: We just might have just received the first of many kicks, you know, like we got kicked down by this virus. And I heard Jeff Gibbs say in an interview with you, uh, the director of Planet of the Humans, that uh, this might just have been a training exercise. I have felt since the time I was in my 20s studying environmental chemistry, and I went into a funk because I learned about climate change in 1977. We knew about this a long time ago, and Mm -hmm. we've been trying to do, some of us have been trying to do something a long time about this, and I, I fell into a period of despair, but the way I see this is this is just the first time we're kicked and we've been kicked down. Now we try to get up. And a society like the United States has just spent four trillion dollars and a lot of that money, you know, went to the wrong people. And now if let's say there's a recurrence of this virus and it's even more intense than the first go round, it could potentially bankrupt a lot of countries, including our own, not just economically, but we already know that we're seeing signs of the moral bankruptcy of these of these governments. This government has really revealed that to itself. It sounds to me like you've been preparing for these converging crises, which is humanity being kicked and kicked and kicked some more. Could it be that this is just the first? I mean, is that what you're anticipating? Is that this is the first of many <laughs> assaults yeah. on a civilization yeah. that is totally out of whack?
2: Yes, I, I think so. And I think, um, I don't know, I, I noticed something really interesting happen when the pandemic hit the United States and I imagine it had already arrived. By the time the U.S. government and the state's governments were starting to impose lockdowns and stay-at-home orders and all of the reactions that we saw, the economic shutdown, the virus was already here, but it was just beginning to spread, right? And as that was happening, I felt some part of me really deeply that some massive shift was occurring. And it was interesting. It was, it was almost a, a, a feeling of exhilaration but also fear. It was like, it was a co- it was a cocktail of emotions, a cocktail of feelings that I couldn't really, I can't really explain. There's not really a word for it. And I noticed all these other people in my life and other friends, they were like feeling, I feel something too. Some, some wave is happening here. And I think when that happened, when I felt that I knew that this was just the beginning of some massive cascading shifts that were occurring, that were beginning to occur, that life as we knew it would not really ever go back. We would never go back to what it was like before the pandemic. I deeply feel that. I feel on a somatic level, like something has just shifted that we cannot go back. There's no way to go back. It's too late. The way that we're going to have to live now is so different from anything we've ever been used to. And it's it's kind of scary. You know, I, I keep on thinking about how much we took for granted. You know, things that we never even thought about, like the ability to go into public spaces and to be near people, to share things with people, like little things, just physical contact with other human beings. And now every time I go out, I'm wearing a face mask and I'm conscious of what I'm touching and what I'm not, you know, and and where I can go and where I can't go. I watched a really excellent documentary about the 1918 influenza pandemic. And the second wave of that pandemic was the worst. So we just experienced the first wave in right. many places, and we're probably going to experience a second and potentially third wave before it even comes anywhere close to being manageable. So we all need to be prepared for that as much as we can. I mean, it's, it's hard, but recognize that this isn't going to go away, not for a while anyway. This has been a trial run. This has been showing exactly the weaknesses of our, our systems, of our government, of how our socioeconomic system works. The fact that we have tens of millions of Americans that don't have a job and that they're not being supported in any real meaningful way by the government and that the priorities lie in in making sure that the rich stay rich and that the divisions between the various classes stays there and that 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 gap continues to widen. That's the priority. That's the imperative uh, of those that are in charge. That's what they want to do, to continue to maintain that. I think any of the solutions that are often presented to us are just not going to cut it. So, like, go vote you know, but it's like, Mm -hmm. is that really gonna make any difference at this point? Are we, I think we're way past the point that that even has any significant (laughs) effect on anything. And people get mad because they hate it. Mm -hmm. They hate the idea that they have to think outside of that a little bit. But I really think that we're way past that point now. And so yeah, I mean, if, if this pandemic doesn't reveal that to people, then I don't know what will. I don't know. I don't know what it'll take to get people to really snap out of it and ask the right
1: questions. Well, it seems to me that a total collapse of infrastructure where you go, oh, the supply chain of food and basic necessities is gone. What do we do? In the Depression, there were local currencies that appeared. Uh, There were communities who took care of each other. I've talked to many of those people who grew up in that era. People shared food from their gardens. They did a number of things to be resourceful and survive. One of the things that we're seeing a little bit of a hint of is that people are be trying to take care of themselves and each other a little more. I mean, I'm not certainly going to generalize to the whole population.
2: No, no but that's we, true.
1: We went out and planted a garden as soon as we heard about COVID-19, yeah. you know, yeah, and we I mean, know right. a lot of people did that. We started checking up on neighbors and people in our community who we weren't sure had enough. And there's these gestures of caring that, that are happening because we know that that infrastructure was, was never looking out for us all that well in the first place. And it looks like it's, it's taking a beating You and I might be fortunate or unfortunate enough to be living through interesting times. This might be the start of an age of of these converging crises. That's how I see 2020 as a possibility. And so if we're entering an age of intense global crisis, what words of wisdom can you give us in terms of how you make it through this intense period in not just our lives, but in our, our history as a species? You know, you, you pointed
2: to how people are trying to take care of each other more. I think we know deep down instinctually that there, there's been plenty of research into this. When there are states of disaster, people do things that they would have normally never thought of doing or never would have considered doing, which is taking care of each other. Certainly, there's examples of the opposite that take place. But overwhelmingly, when I mean we see what happened with Hurricane Katrina. Mutual aid networks sprung up almost immediately after that crisis hit. And especially when it sunk in that federal agencies like FEMA and charity groups and nonprofits weren't really doing it, weren't really helping at all. They were, in fact, a lot of them were making it worse in some cases. There are these just sort of spontaneous things that emerge. And I think when we have disaster scenarios, collapse and crises emerge, something much deeper comes up something much deeper about wanting to take care of each other and do the right thing. I think many, many people will do that. But I think it's also important that that aspect of our human nature, which is often de-emphasized in a capitalist system, that when that system doesn't work anymore, that nature then begins to to come up again. That's a part of us. That's that's another aspect of who we are. And it, so it, it's great that we have that. So we need to do whatever we can in any state, of it doesn't have to be a crisis, but especially in states of crisis, to emphasize those capacities for taking care of one another, of compassion and love and solidarity, and I think that that's extremely important because what happens is that when things fall apart, that's when people can be most receptive to alternative ways of thinking and being. That's when they realize, like, oh, the thing that I was that I assumed to be true may not be. So that's a, that's a time of opportunity, but it's also dangerous because other things could come in that could make things worse. But I think it's imperative for people that are aware of these things and are asking these questions that we've been discussing here, that they engage in forms of organization that embody those values. Because then if people who don't normally think about these things see it as an example, then they'll recognize like, oh, this is a possibility. This is actually possible to live this way. That to me is the best thing. It's, it's one thing to sit here and talk about theory and ideas and all these things, but actual practice, to actually practice mutual aid and solidarity building egalitarian structures, regenerative societies like that. If people can see it in action, it makes it so much better and easier for people to come on board. So for anybody that's out there, I would say, you know, look for those people, look for those organizations that are already doing that and try your best to highlight them, to work with them, to try to embody those values in your own community right now. And everybody's going to do the best they can, wherever they're at, but every little thing counts. When I do my podcast, I talk a lot about these ideas, but that doesn't necessarily mean that I know how to do them either. I'm learning too. I wanted to be very clear in my work that I'm trying to present this as a very inquisitive and hopefully humble person that's just trying to learn as, as I go along as well. So people can kind of come on that journey with me as I learn these things. But in my work, yeah, that's basically what I've tried to, um, try to present.
1: What do you do to maintain balance at times that feel chaotic,
2: Mm, it's interesting. I um, <laughs> So I've had a very, I talked about, you know, those violent changes that occur that'll, that force you to grow and become something different. The past year or so has been one of those experiences where I've had some, I've had a lot of things happen to me in just the past year and having those experiences that I had. In fact, Victor, I think the first time you contacted me, I was in Brazil. I was mm-hmm. there for two months and I came back and it was a pretty amazing um, and life-changing experience. But All the things that have come out of that change in my life, I've realized that I actually don't have very many practices to center myself. So I've been reaching out to people that I've made connections with through the podcast that are doing body work. There's all kinds of practices, meditative practices and things like this to basically work with this information. I mean, I am just struggling with this pandemic just like everyone else. I feel fortunate that I'm where I'm at right now. I'm in a good spot. But I feel a lot of the feelings that most people are probably working with right now, which is loneliness and isolation and almost a, a wa- there's like a wave of feeling that comes and goes every day. And I have to really try to resist doing things that are self-destructive <laughs> and actually try to do things and try to build habits that are like helpful. And that actually center me and ground me. And people that, are, that I've met that are doing this kind of work, in whatever way they're doing it, they have all had come to a point of burnout in their work where they're like, I have to figure something out. And so they've developed all kinds of practices to do that. So personally, I'm still learning. I'm trying to figure that out for myself. I haven't figured it out completely, but that's something I've really been trying to work with lately in my own personal life. So, yeah, I don't know if I have any specific advice for anybody. I just, I just get it as all. I just, I think, yeah, we need to develop those practices, but I'm, I'm learning right now.
1: What those may be. The thing that strikes me about you is what an open and sensitive person you are, I really respect and admire that. Uh, You know, you, you you shoot it straight. You don't sugarcoat it. Uh, (laughs) I, I really Good. appreciate that. And it comes through in your podcast. So I just want to say, Patrick, thank you so much for taking the time. Keep, keep on keeping on, man, because okay. there's a lot of us who really find spiritual nourishment in what you're doing. No, oh, Thank you. I really appreciate
2: that. And, and if I could say one last thing, which, and I, I, <laughs> I always feel weird doing this, but it's kind of a little plug here. I do have a book that I'm coming out with and it's gonna be a collection of interviews that I did. And a lot of the things we just discussed, it, it's explored more deeply in that book. It's a collection of almost 30 interviews that I've done. And so that's, we're just finishing up that right now. It'll be out at the end of this month. Um, so they're
1: basically uh, transcripts from your uh, podcast interviews?
2: Yeah, and there's, so there's segments that I picked and I tried to weave them ar- together around different themes. And I provide commentary between each interview to try to tie it all together. So yeah, to get more deeply into the subjects we talked about, I would say that my book was, this is the only book I've produced uh, so far, at least, and it, it really does address all these subjects. So I would just ask people to check it out. The title of that is, We Live in the Orbit of Beings Greater Than Us. That line comes from my last interview in the book with Bayo Akamalafé. Yeah, I'm really pleased with the process. And I'm really excited to take it out there. It's another way that my work has evolved in the directions that it's gone in. So I'm very excited to have that out there. And I think again, it'll really dig more deeply into what we discussed in this in this conversation.
1: I saw that on your website. I, I think it's great. We're happy to put anything you want on the program notes for this interview. You've referred to a number of people we will put links to their work. And if you want okay. to share anything else, uh, that would be great.
2: Yeah, that's it. I mean, just my website is a really good place. Everything is there. Yeah, com. Yep. Thanks, Thanks again. You, uh, yeah. Thank you, Victor. I appreciate the uh, opportunity to speak with
1: you. That concludes our program, which is episode 6 of the Nature MI podcast. I want to thank my guest, Patrick Farnsworth. You can learn more about Patrick's excellent podcast by going to his website, which is com. If you like what you hear, make sure to follow us on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Pandora, or Podbean. You can also listen to any of the episodes on this podcast by going to naturemi.com. Thanks for listening, and until the next time, stay tuned, stay well, and stay inspired.
0: have been listening to the Nature MI podcast. To learn more about what we're doing to bring humanity more into balance with nature, please visit us at naturemi.com. We also welcome your ideas and feedback. If you would like to be a guest on a future podcast, let us know about your nature-inspired solutions and strategies. Thanks for listening.